That was great. Thank you, young people, very much. And I understand tonight you're all going to jail. Is that right? One of the things that uh, happens around here at the Master's College is student ministry. And one of the ministries that is going to be going on tonight is that Majesty is going to be singing at the local jail. I don't know which jail. Wayside Honor Ranch. Oh, great. And that's part of the ministry. There are all kinds of things that go on in the college. There's Bible study tonight. There's uh, witnessing teams that go out. And even jail teams, our music people are involved in many things, as are all of our students. We're going to be praying tonight that God will give you a great, great time and some men will come to know Christ because of your ministry. Let me say how grateful I am that all of you are here. We really are excited to have many of you visiting us on VIEW weekend. We hope it's a special time. We have all kinds of exciting things to plan for you, and uh, we just trust that you'll enter into everything and enjoy this opportunity. I want to mention one announcement, and that is that we want all of the students to stay immediately after chapel. Don't leave because Don Gilmore has some announcements. Is that right, Don? Okay. Just a few. Oh, okay. Just the view weekend students. Everybody else can go on to class. Sorry about that. But uh, those of you here for View Weekend, stick around for some announcements. I thought that this morning we might just uh, continue in a special sort of two-part series that we're doing in chapel. And so I want to talk to you on the subject of leadership. Now, last time I spoke in chapel, we talked about being a servant. And today we want to talk about being a leader. And the two are really one and the same in many ways, aren't they? One of the things that we're committed to at the college is building Christian leaders. I really feel that if there's any one great need in the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States and around the world, it is great need for leadership. I was talking to Dr. Charles Smith, who will be coming as part of our faculty in September. He will be beginning a new graduate school program, which will be starting in September of 1987. Dr. Smith and I were talking at lunch about what the great needs of the church are, and he articulated exactly what I feel, that the greatest need in the Church of Christ today is a need for leadership. And it's really one of the goals here that in the time that you're a student at the Master's College, you would learn to be a spiritual leader. You would learn to develop your leadership ability. And part of that is going to fall to those of you who are not only gifted by God, but are diligent enough to study the Scripture and find out what the elements of leadership really are. And I want to share those with you in, a, I trust, a kind of an unusual way this morning. But before I look at a passage, let me just talk a little bit about how the world views leadership. I think my favorite leader is um, Snoopy. One time Snoopy said, I hate being head beagle. Um, and what he meant by that in the inimitable way of Charles Schultz was it's very difficult being the leader because everyone has such unreasonable expectations for you. Leadership does have its problems. When the world looks for leadership, what are they looking for? About 10 years ago, I got a hold of an entire training course for leadership published by some management people, and it's been updated since then. But let me tell you what the world looks for when they look for a leader, all right? I'm going to give you a few of the characteristics of what is called a strong natural leader. They use the term SNL. That's a strong natural leader. This is what industry looks for. This is what business looks for. This is what um, economics, education, just about any area of, of human endeavor looks for these kinds of things in a strong natural leader. And here are the typical characteristics of this person. Number one, he's a visionary. In other words, a person who's dreaming dreams about things that haven't yet happened. 
He's able to conceive in his own mind the things that aren't and, and dream those dreams into reality. He is a visionary. Secondly, he is action-oriented. A leader inevitably pursues things from an aggressive, active viewpoint. He's not just a visionary. He makes things happen, action-oriented. Thirdly, inevitably, a leader of great natural ability is courageous. Now, sometimes in Christianity we call it faith, and it really is nothing more than guts. It's just the ability to stick your neck out, to run a risk. And strong natural leaders succeed because they basically are willing to take big risks. Another thing that the world identifies about a leader is he is objective focused. In other words, strong natural leaders tend to focus on the goal at hand and they don't even know the people are there. They're not concerned with people. They're not concerned with how people respond to what they do. They're frankly not concerned about whether the people around them succeed. They only concern themselves with the focus of their objective. That's pretty typical. And people can be in the process great casualties to their dreams and their action and their objectives. Another thing is that strong natural leaders tend to be what we call paternalistic. Paternalistic means they tend to see themselves as the great father who has to take care of everybody. In other words, everybody is beneath them in a sense, and they're the ones who call all the shots and give all the leading and give all the direction, and everybody needs to sort of come along in the little covey underneath them while they control the environment for everyone. Paternalistic. Another characteristic of a strong natural leader is they are egocentric. The whole world revolves around them, what they want, how they're going to appear to, to the people they want to appear well to, whether they're going to succeed, how much money they're going to make, and all of that kind of thing. Another one is that they are intolerant of incompetence. It is typical of strong natural leaders that they cannot tolerate incompetence in other people. It drives them crazy to have people around them who do not function at the level that they expect and demand. And inevitably, those people become casualties to the system. Finally, and this is the ultimate mark of the strong natural leader, they believe themselves to be indispensable. If they would die, the whole world would come to an immediate end. Now, let me run by those again. This is, this is typical of the strong natural leader. Visionary, action-oriented, courageous, energetic. I didn't throw that one in. I could add that. Very energetic. Kind of goes along with action-oriented. Objective-focused, paternalistic, egocentric, intolerant of incompetent people, and they believe themselves to be indispensable. Now, that's a typical kind of leader. Now, when you get a leader like that in a church, you know what happens? Problems. You have a visionary, for example, who leads the people into some kind of new situation that never gets completed. This is the guy who leads the people. He's got 112 people and he decides to have a $4 million building program. And they get about $450,000 into it and they're in hock up to their ears and he leaves. People who are unrealistic visionaries can be a real problem for the church. What about an action-oriented person? A person who is so peripatetic, that is so always in motion, they're never able to sit down and study. And you get a, a leader in the church who has very little content to his ministry. He's like the guy who jumped on his horse and rode off madly in all directions. There's really no rhyme or reason, no depth. Everything is sort of, we used to call it the birdbath approach, a mile long and an inch deep. All kinds of action, full of sound and fury, signifying what? Nothing, said Shakespeare. And what happens when you get a real courageous, gutsy person who thinks that's faith? 
He convinces people that his flat-out courage and his high-risk approach to life is the leading of God. And again, that can be very problematic. And when you get a person who's objective-focused and sees very little benefit to people, uh, using people strictly as a means to get to his objective, they become great casualties in the ministry. And frankly, people should be the objective of the ministry, and they often are not with this kind of person. A paternalistic person tends inevitably to dominate a church ministry or any ministry to the degree that he never releases things to other people. And everybody is ultimately answerable to him, and everybody is under his control at all times. And, of course, egocentric people cannot function in the humility of the spirit. People who are intolerant of others' mistakes cannot allow the freedom to fail, and therefore they never develop leaders in other people. And those who think they're indispensable are really a problem. There's nothing less true than that, right? Someone said, I was reading it last week, that God's men die, but his work goes on. So the church is really not looking for strong, natural leaders in that classic sense. What is the church looking for? What kind of leaders would the Lord be pleased to have in the church? Well, if we were to go to the Bible, into the New Testament, we would find one leader who stands out throughout the whole of the New Testament. I'm not talking about Christ, obviously, but I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. Without question, in my mind, the greatest spiritual leader, apart from the Lord, who ever lived, was the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul obviously demonstrates in many, many ways the characteristics of leadership. But one passage, more than any other, to me, is illustrative of his leadership capability, and that's Acts 27. So take your Bible and open it with me to the 27th chapter of Acts. And I want to show you in this very unique setting of Acts 27 the elements of true biblical leadership. What really produces a leader will be made manifest through this unusual scene in Acts 27. Now, let me give you the picture. As we come to Acts 27, Paul is a prisoner. He is a prisoner in Caesarea, which is a city on the coast of Palestine. It is about 60 miles west of Jerusalem. It is a city named after Caesar, and it is the city of Roman occupation. That is to say, it is the city where the Roman presence in Palestine is garrisoned. They were stationed there. It was greatly to their advantage to stay as far away from Jerusalem as they possibly could, and yet be close enough to have some control. Paul, when he came back to Jerusalem after his missionary journey, was really... Uh, inadvertently thrust into a riot and his life was being threatened. So the Romans rescued him from the Jews who would have killed him for what they accused him of desecrating the temple. The Romans rescued him and they had kept him captive now for a couple of years, not knowing what to do with him and wanting to protect him from the hostility of the Jews. And because he was a Roman citizen, he had the right to their protection. But as you come to chapter 27, he is being sent to Rome after about a two-year imprisonment in Caesarea under the Roman control. He is being sent to Rome because he has demanded a right to a Roman trial to resolve this situation. Because he's a citizen, he has that right. He's on his way to see Caesar. Now, as they get on the ship at the beginning of chapter 27 to sail from the coast, Caesarea, all the way to Rome, he is a prisoner. You have to understand that. The hierarchy of the ship would go something like this. The owner of the ship, the captain of the ship, the first mate of the ship, all the Roman soldiers who are in control of the prisoners and the prisoners are on the bottom. Paul is a prisoner. 
And yet, before the journey is over, he rises from being the lowest guy on the ladder, a prisoner, to being in control of everything. He is literally in control of all that goes on before they get to Rome. And what you see in that is the quality and character of leadership that rises to the top like cream, no matter what the circumstances. Now, let's look at chapter 27. I want you to just look as we read the narrative, and I'll identify to you the characteristics of leadership that I see. Now, remember, Paul is a prisoner. When it was decided, I'm reading from the NIV, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners, indicating that he was too a prisoner, were handed over to a centurion, that's a man who ruled over a hundred men, named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. The Imperial Regiment was the private bodyguard of troops assigned to Caesar himself. These guys would be the soldiers' soldiers. They would be the crack troops of the Emperor himself. And the man who was the centurion would be the man who was over them. So this is a real soldier, this man named Julius. He understands his duty, he is strong, he is capable, and he is loyal to the Emperor. So Paul is put into his care. They're not going to have any, any risk in this operation of losing this political hot potato by the name of Paul. They boarded a ship which was registered at a town called Adramedium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. Now, that would be Turkey, modern Turkey, which is on the north part of the Mediterranean in the east. Just at, You know how you can always have a map of Israel. Just make your hand like this, and this is Israel, and here's the Mediterranean. This is on the north part southern Turkey. They were going to sail along there, sail along the coast, and drop right down into Italy. It says then, we put out to sea, and a man by the name of Aristarchus, a Macedonian, that's a Greek, from Thessalonica, was with us. Now watch this. The next day, we landed at Sidon. Have you ever heard of Sidon? Sidon is a city on the north coast. So what they did basically was board a ship, a ship whose port registry was Adramedium, the ship sailed up the coast in one day to Sidon and docked. They've only been on the ship one day. Paul is a prisoner. Now, there is a basic Roman law. The Roman law is you lose your prisoner, you lose your what? Your life. So nobody wants to lose a prisoner. Certainly not Julius, who is the soldier's soldier, the head of the troops who belong to the personal bodyguard of the emperor himself. But when they land at Sidon, listen to this, Julius... In kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. It's amazing. This man lets Paul go ashore to visit his friends. Now, if you know anything about a prisoner, you would imagine that he would get off that ship, he would land on shore, and it would be all over. He would be long gone. Why was it that Julius allowed Paul to go ashore to be with his friends so they might provide for his needs? Listen to this. In one day, in one day, somehow, some way, Paul had convinced Julius that he could be what? What's the word? Trusted. You want to know something? Julius knew if he lost Paul, he'd lose his life. You want to know something else? Paul knew. If Julius lost him, he would lose his life. Julius believed that Paul would never do anything that would cost Julius his life. Let me tell you something about leadership. Leadership begins when you are trusted. That's where it begins. 
When people believe that you have their best interest in your heart and you would never do anything to violate that best interest, they're going to follow you. On the other hand, we're talking about the SNL, when people think that you have only your interest in mind and you are going to use them to get what you want, they'll never follow you. And one of the things you will learn, and I don't care whether it's the church or whether it's business or whatever it might be in your life, is that you will begin to be a leader when people begin to follow. Somebody said to me one time, what's a leader? I said, that's somebody who has somebody following him. It's not a title. And people will follow one that they believe in, that they trust. And they'll trust you when they, in their minds, are convinced you have their best interest in your heart. And I would say then that the first characteristic of leadership is it is trusted and respected. A leader is one who is trusted and respected. Now, I don't know how Paul convinced Julius. It doesn't say. It's somewhere between the white spaces there. I don't know how he convinced him of that. But he did. Some way, somehow. And I, I suggest to you that as you begin to cultivate in your own heart the desire to be a leader in any area of life, that you learn that the leader is the one who is known as the servant of other people, who seeks not his own gain at the expense of someone else, but will keep himself a prisoner, if need be, for the sake of someone else. That's where it starts. All right. By the way, Paul did come back. And Julius knew he would. Verse 4. Notice. From there we put out to sea again, and we passed to the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. They, they had to go around Cyprus on the south side, contrary to where they had wished to go, Cyprus being the island there in the Mediterranean. And then they sailed along across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. Again, that would be modern Turkey. Uh, Cilicia is a region on the southern part of what is now Turkey, what used to be known as Asia Minor. Pamphylia was a sort of a hot dog-shaped little strip of land along the coast. They sailed along that way. They landed at Myra in Lycia. And there a centurion found an Alexandrian ship, Alexandria being in the north part of Egypt. They found a ship registered in Alexandria sailing for Italy, and they switched ships. Okay? We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Canidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty, came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Now, those details are just to, to kind of let you know the geography, and they're going along, and it's kind of slow, and they're not able to go the way they want to go. They come now, because of the delays, to a town called Fair Havens, and they're sort of stuck there. Now, notice verse 9. Much time had been lost. And sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. It was after Yom Kippur. It was after the Day of Atonement. It was moving into the fall. And at that particular time, there are very severe winds that come out of what is today Russia, come out of the north and come across the Mediterranean. And even today, if you were to cruise the Mediterranean, there is seasonal cruising. And if you don't have the right kind of ship, you get off of that, of that sea at certain times of year. And it was that time of year here. It was late into the fall, and there was great concern that it was dangerous to sail. Notice this. Now, too much time has gone by. Too many poor winds, too much off-course sailing, and their, their hurry to get to Italy is now in great danger because of the late date. Now, notice in verse, the, the, verse 9, it says toward the end of the verse, So Paul warned them. Now, I, I like that. 
Paul stood up and gave a speech. Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo in our own lives also. Now get this. Who is this guy giving the speech? This is not the owner of the ship. This is not the captain. This is not the first mate. This is not a Roman centurion. This is a prisoner. Let me tell you the second characteristic of initiative, of, of leadership. It's initiative. The second characteristic of leadership is initiative. You know how I can identify a leader? I can, if I'm with a person for very long, I can identify them as a leader by the simple element of initiative. What does initiative mean? See a problem, recognize a need, and establish a solution for that meeting of that need. Initiative. You show me a person with initiative, and I'll show you a leader. You show me a person who says, huh, well, what problem? Huh? There's a problem? And I'll show you a person who doesn't have any leadership. There's something about a leader that recognizes that there's a problem, and it doesn't matter where they are on the roll, on, on the totem pole, or where they are on the ladder, or the strata of organization. It doesn't matter whether they have a title, or they're top man or bottom man. Leadership is initiative. Paul saw a problem. He spoke to the issue. And this is characteristic of strong leadership. You could sort of... You could sort of divide initiative into three parts. One is recognition of a need. Two is the finding of a solution. And three is the mobilization of people to work that solution out. One is to recognize a need. Two is to develop a solution. Three is to mobilize people to fulfill that solution. Initiative. Here is Paul, the last guy of any responsibility. All he is is a prisoner, and yet he stands up and he gives the speech that articulates the problem. Now, let me tell you another thing about a leader, and it's in those same two verses. A leader uses good judgment. A leader uses good judgment. Paul said, look, we've had such a delay, it's dangerous to sail. It's past the fast, the Day of Atonement. Our voyage is going to be disastrous. It's going to bring great loss to ship and cargo. This ship cannot survive this period of the year out on the open sea in the Mediterranean. Now, this is a characteristic of leadership. It's not high risk. It's not gutsy to the point of leading people into danger. It is expressed in good judgment. I would say that in my own experience as a pastor through the years working with other pastors, the number one thing, this is after about 20 years of experience, the number one thing that causes people to fail in terms of their church ministry, in terms of any kind of ministry, or even in terms of career orientation, the number one thing that causes pastors to fail or any other area of leadership is their inability to use good judgment. And what happens is they make too many bad judgments and people begin to distrust their counsel. And then you've got a real problem. Leaders use good judgment. Very few pastors are, you know, asked to leave their church because of bad sermons. It's usually bad judgment. People will forgive you if you can't preach too well, but they won't forgive you if they can't trust your leadership. And that's true in any area. So let's see what happened. He gives his little speech, takes his initiative, uses good judgment. But the centurion, now here comes Julius and he's in charge. Instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot or the captain and the owner of the ship. Now, you don't blame Julius, do you? 
I mean, he would go to the owner of the ship and he'd say, what do you think? And the guy who owned the ship, you think he'd care about what happened to his ship? Sure. And what about the captain? Sure. Because the captain goes down with the ship, he doesn't want to go down. So if you ask those people and they said, let's go, let's go, you know, for them it's money, right? I mean, we got a cargo, the sooner we get it there, the sooner we get paid, let's get this thing going. And so uh, he listened to them, which we can understand. And by the way, it says in verse 12, the harbor was unsuitable to winter in. The last place they wanted to spend the winter was in Fairhaven. Nice name, bad town. So they wanted to sail to Phoenix. It's a different Phoenix, obviously. And spend the winter there. Phoenix was nice. Oh, this was a harbor in Crete and it faced southwest and northwest, which meant it faced away from the wind. Fair Havens faced in the bad direction. So they wanted to get to a nice place and spend the winter there if they had to spend it anywhere. They did not want to spend it in Fair Havens. And you know what happened? In verse 13, a gentle south wind began to blow. And they thought, oh, this is great. South wind is never the problem. It's always the north wind. So they thought they got what they wanted. They threw their anchor in, sailed along the shore of Crete. And as they were going, before very long, a wind of hurricane force called a northeaster, Eurachlidon, swept down from the island. Here came the very thing that Paul had warned about. And the ship was caught by the storm and couldn't head into the wind, so he gave way to it and were driven. You know what that means? They let the rudder go. They just let the rudder go and put the, the sail in the wind, because if you try to do anything else, that kind of wind will rip your, your mast to shreds. So they just let the wind blow the ship. And they were moving along past the lee of a small island called Kauda, and we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. They had a little dinghy on their ship, and usually as the ship was going along in calm waters, the dinghy would be on the back just bouncing along. They pulled it on board, tied it down, hoisted it aboard, and then it says in the Greek they frapped the ship. Those ships were made out of wood planks and tongue and groove and pegs. And in the storm, those things would begin to come apart. So they had a great series of winches on the deck and they would strap ropes around the entire hull of the ship and they would winch those ropes tight to keep the tongue and groove uh, planks from disintegrating in the storm. So they frapped the ship. They pulled the dinghy on board. You never want to lose your dinghy. I mean, if that happens, you're really dead. That's the only way you can get to shore. Well, they were afraid, it says, they are afraid that they would run aground on the sandbars of the Surtees. The Surtees is the north coast of Africa. And what happens when that nor'easter blows is it blows all the way down to the Surtees. And to this day, the Surtees is known as the graveyard of sunken ships. Because so many ships through the years have been smashed on the rocks and the sandbars of the Surtees. And they thought that's exactly what they were going to do. So they threw out the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. They put the anchor out to slow the ship down. So here's the ship going, being blown in this hurricane. And the, the anchor is dragging along, trying to retard a little bit the speed with which it's going when, in hopes that somewhere the anchor might dig in before they smash into the Surtees. Now, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. Now you know they're getting serious. This is money. And they started jettisoning the cargo. Why? To get the ship up on top of the water, more buoyant, so that it doesn't sink. And the third day, they threw the, ta the ship's tackle. You know what that is? All the ropes and all the stuff you work the sails with and everything else. They're throwing everything out. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, and we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Now, can't you imagine that by this time they're all saying we should have listened to whom? Paul. He told us. 
Now, do you understand? Here's another element of leadership. Leadership inevitably rises to the top in a crisis. Leadership inevitably rises to the top in difficult times. Anybody can be a leader when you don't need one. Any can, anybody can be a leader in the easy times. It's the ability to deal with a crisis. Now, when they got into this situation, who do you think they would have turned to? The centurion? The owner of the ship? The pilot of the ship? Those guys were wrong. All of them were wrong. Who was the only guy that was right? See, he solidified himself by his good judgment. Leadership rises to the top in a crisis. All leadership is made for crisis times, difficult times. So here they are. They haven't seen the sun or the stars. In other words, the clouds, the storm is dominating them. They don't even believe they're going to live. Verse 21, look at this. And after the men had gone a long time without food, they haven't even eaten. Paul stood up before them and said, here it's time for his second major speech. Men, what does he say? You should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete and you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. I told you so. Yeah, that's right, you did. Now listen to what he does. Now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Sure, the ship's going to be destroyed and we're all going to be okay. Hard to believe. How do you know that? Last night, an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. You want to know something? Those people didn't know how secure they were. Because God was going to deliver Paul, and they were in the same boat with Paul they were going to get delivered to. I've often thought of that. Some people say when you fly a lot... Do you, do you worry about what might happen in the air? No, when I get on a plane, I just think how fortunate all those people are who are on that plane with me because i got to go somewhere to preach. And uh, the Lord wants me there to preach, so they'll all get there too. But the Apostle Paul, I want you to notice this is another characteristic of leadership, spoke with authority. Spoke with authority. I remember I used to be the chaplain for the L.A. Police Department when uh, Chief Davis was the chief, and I used to go down and speak and pray at their graduations at the academy and things. And I remember uh, them telling me one time that they had to flunk a student out of the police academy because of his voice. He did everything else well, but, he, but his voice. This was the day before they had women policemen. Um, and I asked, well, what was the problem? They said, well, we don't feel you can go up behind a bank robber and say, put him up, you're under arrest. Um, I guess now with women police, there are some who do say that. But anyway, I was curious, so I pursued that a little bit in a conversation with Bob Vernon. And Bob said to me, he said, one of the most important things in law enforcement is the ability to speak with authority. And that's part of leadership. Now, Paul spoke with authority, and he spoke with authority, first of all, because he knew what he was saying. How did he know the ship was going to make it? How did he know that? How did he know that? An angel came and told him, right? He spoke with authority because he had the right to do that. And that is another element of leadership. 
the ability to speak with confidence and authority. If you vacillate in your communication, people get the idea you're not too sure about what you're saying. The ability to speak with authority. That's the old preaching thing, you know, weak point, yell here. But there is truth to that, believe it or not. The ability to speak with authority. So Paul speaks with authority. Now, I don't mean self-styled authority. Paul spoke with authority because he had a word from God. Is that not right? And I think that if we're going to speak the word of God, we ought to speak it with authority as well. He knew his subject and he spoke with authority. Now, verse 25, he says, So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Now, that's another characteristic. An, a leader speaks with authority, and as a corollary to that, he strengthens others. Be of good courage. I have faith in God. And you know what? People lean on his faith. People committed themselves to his confidence. It's amazing how people who are weak will be strengthened by someone in their midst who is strong. People who doubt are strengthened by someone who believes. People who don't know where things are going are strengthened by someone who does. Confidence in his strength. So Paul demonstrates another characteristic of leadership, and that is the ability to strengthen others with your own courage and your own confidence and your own strong faith and your own determination. I mean, I see that so very often when things are not going well. It may be on an athletic team. It may be in a business. When things are down, the person with real leadership just then begins to take charge. And while everybody around is weak, somebody with confidence comes in and everybody leans on that confidence and is strengthened in that. Verse 27. On the 14th night... We were driven across the Adriatic Sea. Can you imagine 14 days and nights of this and never seeing the stars, never seeing the sun because of the clouds, thinking any time they're going to smash into the north coast of Africa and be destroyed? When midnight, midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings. You know how they used to do that, drop a rope down and then pull it back up and find out how long it was and how far it went down before it hit bottom. And they, were, they could tell that as the, the, the depth was getting smaller and smaller, that they were nearing the shore. And so they found the water was 120 feet deep. Short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. It's getting more shallow now. They know they're getting near shore. Fearing they would be smashed or dashed against the rocks, here's what they did. They threw out four anchors from the stern, four big anchors, and they prayed for daylight so they could see their way to shore because it was pitch black, as black as a dark closet with the door closed, pitch black. And you know what happened? This is amazing. Verse 30, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat into the sea. Can you believe that? Those great heroic sailors who are supposed to go down with the ship and save the souls of all their cargo. Instead of that, they're getting out of the boat and they're stealing the dinghy. And they pretended they were going to lower some anchors off the bow. And they're out there in the pitch black pretending to lower these anchors. And what they're really doing is lowering the lifeboat. They're going to get in it and leave. And leave all the non-sailors to die. But Paul knew. 
In verse 31, then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you can't be saved. This is an all or nothing deal, guys. So they got the little boat halfway down the bow and the soldiers in verse 32 run out and cut the ropes. And the little boat just goes off into the darkness. And now they have no way off the ship. Whatever possessed those guys, they had worked so hard earlier to make sure that boat didn't get away. Now they cut it loose. You know why? Because there's one guy on that ship they trust. And if he says, cut that lifeboat, they cut it. Now, how do you get from being a prisoner to being in charge? You say, well, it takes a lot of education. Well, you have to, you ha it's a vote. Yes, you have to be voted into office. Well, you have to, uh, you have to get a title. And then you, you sort of use your title and throw your way. No, no. You just have to prove your leader. So here was a man who spoke with authority, who strengthened others with his tremendous optimism, his tremendous enthusiasm. But I want you to get this point. God said, I'll save you all. But the, Lord, the angel had told him, if any of you try to escape, that cancels my promise. So Paul says, cut that boat or you're going to die. This is a principle of leadership I want you to remember. A leader never compromises his absolutes. A leader never compromises his absolutes. That is to say, if you know something is true and is reflective of the Word of God, and if it's something you believe in and something you've banked your life on, then you don't compromise that. So you find out in your life what the non-negotiables are. You find out what the, the bottom line is for you and your character will be determined by how much integrity you have consistent with your non-negotiables. That's, that's the character that makes for leadership. Paul could have said, yeah, well, I believe God, but boy, it sure would be nice to keep that boat, so pull it in. What he was saying was, no, we don't need it, just let it go. And if you try to do it any other way than God's way... Everything will be lost. Never compromised his absolutes. He knew what the non-negotiables were, and he stuck with them. All right, verse 33, and we'll wrap this up. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Can you imagine that? 14 days of this, and they've been so in state of panic, they haven't been able to eat. Now, I urge you to take some food. You need to survive. This is a wonderful balance, by the way, folks. There's the balance between the promise of God and doing all you can to make sure you have the strength to fulfill it, right? God said you're going to be saved, but you eat anyway because you're going to need the strength to save yourself just like God said. So the combination of both things is there. So watch what happened. He says you needed to survive. Wait a minute. You just said God's going to spare us. Yes, but that's the perfect balance between sovereign promise and human effort. So after this, look here, he took some bread and said, thanks to God in front of everybody in the dark, in the storm, they haven't eaten. And he says, thank you, Lord, for this wonderful meal, broke it and started to eat. Now, here may be the, the most important leadership aspect in the whole chapter. A leader leads by what? By example, he said, you eat. And they all stood there dumbfounded. And so what did he do? He set the example. A leader leads by example. And it says in verse 36, then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. 
What, were there any different circumstances? No. That's the character of leadership. Circumstances don't change. It's the strength and confidence and modeling and example of leadership that buoys these people up and they respond. And so they all ate. Why? Because Paul ate. And I'm telling you, folks, he's in charge. He is absolutely in charge of everything. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. And look at this. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, I mean, they didn't just take a nibble. I mean, they porked up. They ate all they wanted. Then they lightened the ship by throwing the grain. This was the last thing to go, was their precious cargo, the grain they were taking, and they threw that in the sea. When daylight came, they didn't recognize the land. Amazing. But they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. And cutting loose the anchors, now they cut the anchors. Now they're just adrift. No lifeboat, no anchors. And they cut loose the anchors, let them go into the sea. At the same time, untied the ropes that held the rudders. They used to hold the rudder. They tied ropes to hold the rudder straight. What would happen if the rudder went this way? He'd just be going like this all the time. So they had tied the rudder straight. They just cut that loose. Now they've got no rudder, no anchors, no, no boat. For rescue's sake. They hoisted the foresail to the wind. That's not the mainsail. That's the foresail like a jib. The big sail to the wind. And the thing went for the beach. They didn't know what beach. They didn't know where they were. The ship struck a sandbar. Funk, and ran aground. Now what they've got is this. Here's the beach. Here's the sandbar. The ship is here. And the surf is behind them. So it's pretty obvious what's going to happen, right? The pounding surf in a hurricane is going to disintegrate the entire ship starting at the, at the stern. The bow stuck fast, wouldn't move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. Why? Because if they lost those prisoners, what was going to happen? They'd lose their life. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life. Why? Why? He was the only guy that could get him out of this. Spare his life. Don't, don't ha let that happen. Don't kill him. So he kept his own soldiers from carrying out the plan, and he ordered everybody who could swim to jump overboard and get to land. And the rest were to get there on planks or pieces of the ship. Are you ready for this? In this way, everybody reached land in what? In safety. You want to know the last thing about leadership? Leadership succeeds. Leadership succeeds. It all came out the way God said it would. Isn't that wonderful? Just as God had said. They all got to land. What a wonderful thing. Do you understand a little more about leadership from that chapter? Let me say this, young people. Listen very carefully. Whether or not you are a leader in any dimension of service to Christ, whether or not you're a leader as a Christian in whatever goals, whatever objectives you have, whether they be in industry or business or whether they be in education or whether they be in the home as a homemaker and a mother, and whatever a goal might be for leadership, leadership has nothing to do with titles. It has nothing to do with education. It has to do with building the kind of quality into your life that we see demonstrated in this man's life. And this is just a brief look. Brief look. And so while you're here at the Master's College or wherever God may have you, cultivate these kinds of things in your life that you may be that leader that God wants you to be. Let's have a word of prayer.
Father, we know that there are some blind spots that leaders have. Sometimes we can be too authoritarian, too demanding. Sometimes we can be too exclusive, feeling we live in a, in a dimension and on a plane apart from others. Sometimes we can be too greedy because we have resources at our disposal. We can become self-indulgent. Sometimes we can become rationalistic. That is to say, no matter what we do, we can find a justification for it. And sometimes we can be very unaccountable. Lord, protect, protect us from perverting the privilege of leadership and call us and grant us by your Spirit to be in a place where we can lead as you would see fit. And Lord, we know that every one of us in some way, at some level, is responsible to be a leader. If in no other way, certainly to lead those around us to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ or our Christian brothers and sisters to a deeper walk with Him. Make us the leaders You want us to be. And we thank You that we need not struggle to become what it is You desire of us in our flesh because You've given us Your Spirit. And we bless You for the gift of the Holy Spirit who works in us to bring about your good pleasure. We give you glory and thanksgiving and ask you to fill this day with blessing for Christ's sake. And everyone said, Amen. Have a great day.